Hi everyone and welcome back to the Deliciously Ella podcast with me, Ella Mills. I've missed you guys the last couple of weeks. I'm very happy to be back. We are still recording from home. Um, Things are still a bit up in the air with coronavirus, but recording from bed has its perks. Pregnancy is getting a little bit exhausting at this point as we start to go into the third trimester. So I'm, I'm not complaining about a little extra time to relax as we record. And I had three exciting things to tell you before we get into today's episode. First things first, our new cookbook launches this week. It launches on Thursday, so two days from now. Quick and Easy has been really, there's nothing I've ever done that is marked by so many roller coasters. Um, It started when I wasn't pregnant. It saw me through the whole first pregnancy with Sky. I went back to work on it when she was four weeks old. She came to all the shoots. So kind of early motherhood was like the center of getting the book together. Then a global pandemic came and changed all our launch plans. And then I got pregnant with baby number two. So the book has been really kind of an emotional roller coaster. And I can't quite believe it's here, but it is here. And it is designed to make plant-based eating as easy as possible. So it's 10 to 15 minute recipes. 30-minute recipes, 20-minute recipes, big batch cooking so you can stock the freezer. It's a kind of dream for working from home sort of lunches at the moment as well. Loads of like dips and dressings and sandwich ideas and things. So I'm hoping it's going to make things very easy. We've got a shopping list at the beginning, which is all the pantry staples. So that will keep you going and you won't have to be kind of popping out for one ingredient that you'll only use once as is in the title it's designed to be especially quick and easy so you don't have to do things like that as of Thursday it launches in the UK and then in um, America and Canada Australia and New Zealand and for anybody else you can also order it on the book depository which can ship worldwide and I know it's half price in Waterstones and Amazon UK right now so I'll pop those links in the show notes below if anyone's keen to get it And we've also just launched our brand new ultimate vegan chocolate chip cookie, which you might have seen on our social media. It's our most popular recipe ever into the frozen aisles of Tesco's, onto Waitrose online and into Whole Foods. And our baked veggie crackers have just arrived in the Waitrose free from aisle. So it's been a busy couple of months while we've been off from the podcast. And we're jumping back in with hopefully a topic that will kind of fascinate everyone because the first episode we did on this topic was one of our most popular ever. And I felt like it was a topic that still had so much more to be explored. It seems kind of really apt, actually, again, with so many things this year, life's changed them and edited them and maybe changed our perspectives of them and maybe changed our situations and so maybe there's something extra for us to be thinking about or learning from here so today we're talking about love and relationships and there's just so much for us all to learn and I'm sure everyone's relationship has been affected in some way good or bad by lockdown and being stuck at home for ages and ages and so um, I'm hoping that we'll all get a lot from this so our guest today wrote the most brilliant book called we need to talk about love which is all about the facts and fictions that surround love and about people's stories and from all different types of love and relationships Um, so Laura is the author she's been on with us before and welcome back Laura hi thank you for having me so today what I wanted to do is I I think the way that Laura's kind of dissected love and relationships is absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to do a sort of 15 facts of love episode. And this covers all sorts of different things from being single to getting divorced to grieving. And there's a special section at the end on relationships and coronavirus, because as I said, I think everyone's had some kind of impact, good or bad, from coronavirus. So can we kick off with number one, which is, I think is such an important one to start with, which is that there's this kind of myth, obviously, because of all like the Disney movies and all the rom-coms out there, that being single is kind of a negative thing. But actually, the statistics around that, again, are just, they're not true. And actually, most people really like being single and 49% of single people actively said they didn't want a partner. And I quite loved why, which is that they love not being nagged. They love being able to spend their money as they like, and they love choosing how to spend their time. Yeah, I, I, I love that too. I also, it's not an unusual finding. It's been a finding that is echoed around the world. So US research has found that 55% of singles had no interest in actively looking. And a Japanese study of over 5,000 single people found that 
more than a quarter said they weren't looking. And being single is now so popular in Japan that the media have dubbed it celibacy syndrome. And in the Japanese study, 76% of single women said they love the freedom of not being married and they like to be able to take it easy and that they weren't having to be responsible for a family. That was something that came up with the men. So I think it's an important topic because a lot of the people that I interviewed around the world who were single talked about this kind of expectation that they would be in a relationship by a certain age or that if they weren't, it was because of some sort of failing or that they hadn't been chosen with this brilliant lady called Marie, who was from the Pyrenees, saying that her friends in Paris would always say to her, I don't understand how someone like you is single. And she was like, well, I do understand it's a choice. So I think there is something really interesting about the way that single people can be treated sometimes when actually it can be a really valid choice and there are massive advantages to it. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting part of the kind of grass is always greener syndrome, isn't it? You know, which we have in so many things, not just in our love lives, but the the idea that, yeah, when I have this, everything's going to be better. And when I get to this point in my life, everything's going to be great. But actually it's so... Yeah, as you said, there's so many people who absolutely love it and we need to take out any sense of judgment about that. We did a very interesting episode actually with a professor from LSE about kind of myths around happiness and so much of that was myths around these sorts of things of this expectation in life that, you know, in order to be happy, you need to get married and you need to have children and you need to have a kind of quote-unquote successful career. And actually, again, statistics show that that doesn't necessarily make people happy at all. Yeah, was that Paul Dolan? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'll put the episode um, link below as well if anyone didn't listen to it. It's really, his work's really interesting. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love him and I love that episode. Yeah, I think it's it's really easy. And it also, like, I reflect on my own life. I remember I thought that, you know, when I graduated as a lawyer, I would somehow magically feel really happy. And then when I got my rights of advocacy so I could speak in court, I would magically be really happy. And, you know, I achieved that. And actually the achievements, you know, I thought when I had my first book out, I'd suddenly magically feel really happy. And actually those things never they've never magically made me really happy but I think it speaks to this whole grass is greener thing and once you get this whatever it is this thing that you've set yourself that you'll be magically happy but it also I think speaks to the idea that sometimes people want to assume that what they have i.e couples want to assume what, what they have is the right choice or the best choice and that in order to hold that belief they need to imagine that people who are single aren't having a great time because it kind of justifies their life or justifies their decision and I don't think that that's always that fair on the other people. No it's a bit like making ourselves feel better by making someone else feel worse which is ultimately never the answer to happiness is it? it's definitely going to lie much more within our own selves than it is on what we project on people around us. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, you know, the research suggests that actually it is much better to be single than in a dysfunctional or deeply unhappy relationship because those relationships are really bad for your physical and mental health. And so actually, you know, being single is better in some ways. But but the whole, you know, happier, healthier debate is really difficult because it's really easy to compare married relation like people who are married to people who are single when there's a huge amount of variety in each you know people who are married encapsulate people who are happily married but also people who are being abused by their partner and people who are single can involve people who are actively choosing to be single who are in their early 20s and people who have just been bereaved and are you know in their 40s with children so I think making those comparisons are are a bit dangerous but a lot of researchers do them Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting following on from that point. Number two was that you said that single people are represented as miserable in the media, (laughs) which is really fascinating. And that when sociologists analysed 40 films from a list of the top 200 US grossing rom-coms, they found that single people were depicted as either lonely, miserable, insecure or frustrated. (laughs) It's just so mean. But it's also, it's interesting, like sociologists have done a few of these where they've looked at the number of films that have grossed a certain amount or whatever over a time period. And uh, they found, for example, in films aimed at children, 
between 1995 and 2005 that friendship was kind of really devalued, like Pumba and the Lion King, a bit of a joke, really. And actually, it was romantic love that was idealized. So it's interesting to think about how different relationships and relationship statuses are represented. But I think it's it's really sad. Like in the study that you just mentioned, that was um, films between 1995 and 2005 and included lots of random films like 50 First Dates and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And, you know, secretly of- love that film. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but like, it's not, I don't think it's great for single people to have their mates saying, ah, oh, why aren't you single? Is it because you haven't been chosen? And then to have that kind of message reinforced by media where single people look really miserable all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you can start questioning whether you're making the right choices. I thought that was a really, really interesting one. And the third one was exactly what you said, which is that if you're not happy in your relationship, then studies have shown those who are married but are dissatisfied in that marriage have poorer health than those that weren't married, which I think is really, you know, that's a really powerful and important tool, which again, just shows exactly what we were saying, which is that like ticking a box isn't the answer to anything in life. No, I agree. And also I think it was interesting thinking about this because quite a lot of research, international research has found that on the whole, there is a tendency to think that people who are married are happier than people who aren't married. And, you know, there was a very large study called the General Social Survey that collected data from more than 40,000 people across the US since 1972. And, And that study found that married people were happier than those who were divorced, widowed, separated, or had never married. But you'd expect people who were married to be happier than those who were widowed, you know? Like, that's not a fair comparison to just group all these different people into one group, you know? And where were they in being divorced? You know, was that something that happened yesterday or 10 years ago? And a really interesting finding, which doesn't actually look that great for single people, sadly, but there was a long-term study called the British Household Survey, and they followed thousands of people every year from 1991 until now and they found that marriage did make people happier but it was only like the tiniest little like woo when they got married and then it went straight back to pre-marriage levels so they concluded that marriage didn't really I mean it made you happier ever so briefly when you got married and then it went back to where you were before Stevie Yap, who is one of the researchers behind this found that the people who stayed single all the way through declined in happiness over time so they concluded that marriage doesn't make you happier in the long term but it protects you from the growing unhappiness that you see in people who remain single that is very interesting so it's a question of whether something's kind of an active choice or not because perhaps in the very long term people would have preferred a partner yeah also one of the conclusions I've come to is that I think Obviously, a lot of people choose to have long-term romantic relationships, but I think really the most important thing is the companionship that you get from those relationships. And that doesn't need to be in a romantic context. And I spoke to a lot of people around the world who had that kind of relationship with a sibling or a best friend, you know. So I think it... as long as you have that sense of safety in a relationship, that there's someone there for you, there's someone that cares and that you can turn to. And I don't think that needs to be in a romantic relationship. But, you know, all of this nuance is totally missed when you just compare married to single. Yeah, no, it's so true. And it's really interesting. I was thinking about it while you were saying that, like, just, you know, if I see it, like in my own family, my parents were really unhappily married and then they got divorced well obviously they were both very unhappy because going through a difficult period and they're both now in committed relationships with other people and so but so technically they'd be in the single bucket but they're the happiest I think I've ever seen either of them yeah yeah as in single bucket because they're not married so technically they'd be divorced but they're so they're so much happier than I've ever seen them yeah and it's actually I think dangerous to make sweeping generalizations because it is also individual and the idea that if what you're doing is leaving a really dysfunctional relationship then you'll probably be happier when you leave it whereas if you're leaving a relatively happy relationship because you're fearful of commitment or for whatever reason then you might 
you might actually be less happy. And um, so it's really it, there's there's so much variation in individuals and in their relationships that it is hard to make generalizations. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a very good point. And you made a really interesting point about soulmates, which is something that is a topic I find personally kind of very, very interesting. But you said that 88% of single 20 to 29-year-olds in America thought that there was a soulmate out there waiting for them. And I guess it brings up the question of like, you know, from your research and, and from your just experience as well of talking to so many people around the world, you know, do soulmates exist like should you know 88% of people be sitting and waiting for them you know well I often wonder when they say that they think there is a soulmate waiting for them like what is their soulmate doing are their soulmate just like sitting there knitting waiting to be found and I think that the idea of soulmate I personally find it a tiny bit dangerous because it implies a line of thinking that and a number of ideas that I don't think are very helpful. One being that love is discovered rather than it is built over time. Another one being that, you know, if you do find that soulmate, they will be the right person and everything will be perfect rather than no human being can be. And that if you meet this right person, and if there's only one, then that's quite intimidating, that you will somehow just know. And that if you have any doubts whatsoever, then they can't be right. Whereas I'd argue that, you know, if we go back to attachment theory, which we talked about when we spoke in the last podcast episode, there are some people that will never think any relationship is right. And that's a reflection of them, not not the other person. And then, you know, finding the soulmate will be the most important factor rather than effort or skill. And that passion and lust will never end because everything will just always be brilliant. And, you know, there's massive and very robust research that passion declines over time. So I worry that the idea of a soulmate sets us up for unrealistic expectations. And the other worry I have with it is that for for as many people I interviewed that thought they'd found their soulmate and got it right, I, I met just as many that felt that and then got it horribly wrong. And were they all people, when people felt they had found their soulmate, was that effectively kind of love at first sight? Yeah, often, yeah. I mean, because I know we, we've we've spoken about this before, and and we've spoken about it more generally. But that's that's what Matt and I had, and I I do look back on it sometimes and think, you know, what on earth were we thinking? Like, <laughs> you know, we met and were married, and we started a business together, and got a dog, and you know, moved in together, and like, you know, all the rest of it. By the time we've been together for something like four months, you know, which is really like in retrospect, it's pretty insane. And so far, so good. But it's, um, I look back on it now and I just, I felt so strongly that I knew and, and so did he. And, and I think we were right. But I, I just so often just wonder why was that? Was it just like a brilliant stroke of luck? And it was a lot of like, we were both in the right time at the right place. Was it that we genuinely are soulmates? But I, like you, find that idea a bit terrifying what happens if something happens? You know, there's something terrifying to think that there's no one in the world that you could ever connect with in the same way. It's quite a scary, quite daunting prospect. Yeah, it is really daunting. And I I don't know of any evidence that says, hey, don't worry if you find your soulmate and something happens, you'll find another soulmate. But I do know that the research is quite positive about, you know, if your relationship comes to an end, you're very likely to find someone else. So people that were separated, I think it was 94% um, of them ended up in another relationship. So, but I, I, I hear you. I think it's not very reassuring to think that there's only one soulmate out there for people that haven't found a partner, but also for people that have found a partner to think that, well, if anything happens to this partner, I'm doomed because that's my soulmate. So from like a purely logical point of view, I don't think it's a great way to think about things. But you were saying, you know, what were we thinking? Well, I interviewed this guy who said, I think that there are some people that get it right to begin with. But that doesn't mean they weren't over optimistic to begin with. And I think that, that that is right. Like I'm I'm really happy that you got it right. But my worry is, I guess, almost like as a policy decision, that it's not great to kind of be advocating, yeah, just jump in. If you think you found your soulmate, go for it and go for it early on. Because either yes, there will be people that get it right, but there will also be people that get it wrong. 
Yeah, the over-optimistic is an interesting point. It always fascinates me when I look back on it and it's the best decision that I ever made and hoping Matt feels the same way. But it is fascinating because there was this kind of over-optimistic, this is it, this is perfect. And I do sometimes... I do sometimes wonder whether we were just very lucky that actually we were incredibly similar and in many, many ways and actually, you know, did really gel. But how were we really to know that when we decided to get married after about three minutes? I mean, I'd broken up. We were engaged by the 1st of August and I'd broken up with my boyfriend of four years that January and I had to call him to tell him. And he was like, is this a joke? (laughs) sounds like it but it's actually not yeah I mean that is pretty quick yeah I we said this last time but my advice would have been if we'd spoken on the phone I would have said okay I'm really pleased for you this guy sounds amazing could you just delay it by you know a year maybe a year and a half because you know it doesn't there's no the cost of delaying is not that much compared to the cost of doing it now um oh yeah absolutely I always think of Pascal's wager, this idea that you either believe in God and then if there's a God and you die, then, you know, you go to heaven or whatever. And if there's no God and you've believed in God, then no problem. But if there is a God and you haven't believed in a God, then you die and you have eternal damnation. And so basically the argument is you may as well believe in a God because it's sort of a win-win. And I feel like you may as well delay. You don't lose that much by delaying, but you stand to lose a huge amount if you jump in and make really big decisions when you're high on drugs, basically. Which is basically what's happening in your brain at that like initial intense point of the beginning of a relationship. Yeah, they did uh, studies where they put people into an fMRI scanner and found that similar parts of the brain were engaged in people that had recently fallen in love as those who had taken cocaine and opiates. It's the same part of the brains that have led rats to choose starvation just because they wanted to keep getting that high. It involves serotonin levels seen in people with obsessive compulsive disorder. It's really intense. And that's why, you know, no one should expect that level of passion to last for decades. No. And the research on this is just so interesting. Like they've attached measuring devices to people's genitalia and made them watch erotic films on repeat and found that you know the more you see volunteers for that (laughs) I don't know I don't know can you imagine what that's oh I'd love to take part in that (laughs) yes please thanks to my genitalia yeah um so they signed up uh watched the same erotic film on repeat and unsurprisingly over time the more they saw it the less aroused they were and they've found that I mean obviously that's just a film and that's not a relationship but similar studies um, you know findings have been found when they've looked at people across the U.S. and have asked them loads of questions including about their sex lives and have found that steadily over time sexual frequency decreases and with the people that didn't fill it in and um, they left it blank they could go and find out who their partner was because they had the same marriage date and the same address and found out that when they'd not put the sexual frequency down and their partner had it's because they were having incredibly low levels of sex and so there's this I think this kind of cultural expectation that we're going to have loads and loads of sex all the time forever and ever and actually that's not what happens and it's also something that a lot of the older people that I interviewed talked about you know Noel who was an Irishman in his 80s said you know what sex was important to begin with but now it's more about companionship and it was you know, it's, they're quite honest about it. I also interviewed someone called Kay Wellings, who co-founded some of the biggest research in sex across the UK and found that, that one generation that are particularly suffering in terms of sexual frequency are what she called the sandwich generation, which is people who where both partners work and they have children and they might also have elderly parents. And so they found that they weren't having much sex. And when they asked these people why they'd say because I'm knackered like why would I have sex at the end of an absolutely knackering day when I've got no energy for anything so I do think yeah sex sex declines there's a lot of evidence that that happens and you can do stuff to help rejuvenate it but on the whole it declines yeah better to be honest about it though isn't it but there's the next um our number six although we haven't actually touched on them before yet so we've jumped ahead to number six but (laughs) which I think is quite interesting because it it kind of in some ways is goes against 
what you said, which I, by the way, agree with, which is about slowing things down. What on earth have you got to lose? But that living together before marriage makes divorce more likely. Couples who live together before getting married are more likely to break up than those that don't. Yeah, I find it so fascinating. I, I, I remember reading that at my desk thinking, what? Because I would have thought that living with a partner before would kind of be good due diligence, to use loyalty terms. You know, practice. Well, yeah, you're checking out what they're like, you know, do they clean up? Are they considerate? <laughs> do they really snore to the extent that you can't cope? Uh, the argument that researchers put forward was, well, maybe you have a lower threshold for who you're prepared to live with than who you're prepared to marry. So you think, okay, I'll give it a try. And then you move in together. And then actually you accrue more things together. There are more barriers to leaving. So you buy a sofa, you stay together longer, you get a dog, you buy a bed, you know, and also during this time, your friends might be coupling up or the other options might be reducing or might feel less attractive. And your other options feed into your levels of commitment if commitment theorists are right. And then before you know it, you've kind of slid into a long-term commitment, whereas with marriage, it's more of an active choice. So that's the theory. But there is more recently some conflicted research on that. But I think it's an interesting point. Now that you've explained it, it makes much more sense. And I guess it's the idea that it's, you know, which we see in so many things in life, sometimes it feels easier to stay where you are, whether that's an unhappy career or an unhappy relationship, because it's easier in some ways than unpicking so many parts, whether that is the sofa that you've bought or the mortgage you've taken out or, you know, the courses you've taken during your career in order to start something new. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think the career point is really interesting as well, because obviously I used to be a lawyer and I know quite a few people who are lawyers who have been talking about not being a lawyer for some time. But I think it's really easy once you've got in a career and you become, you know, increasingly senior and you get more benefits and you know what you're doing and that feels nice and you earn more money maybe or whatever it is, it can become harder and harder to leave. So it does make sense from that point of view. But I'm also surprised uh, and maybe that's why there are more mixed results happening now but I do think that living with someone can be quite useful to see you know what they're like every day instead of you know just for a date oh yeah absolutely I mean we lived together for about 10 seconds before we got married (laughs) because the whole thing was 10 seconds we moved in together after our third date um so yeah which was a week But thank God, because you so quickly realise so many things about someone. And it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, we run Delicious Yellow together. So we do live together and work together. So we're used to sharing one space. But even like still locked down the last couple of months, it's even that's been different because we might work in the same office, but we tend to be in different meetings and doing different things. So we're kind of coexisting, but often quite separately. Um, and we'll just be overlapping here or there. And obviously now we've all been spending 24 seven with the people that we live with. And again, you, even through that, I feel like you learn new things about people. Yeah, I agree. I I am. So my husband's a food writer and we often work in the flat together. And even though we're working on different things, we'll kind of pop into each other to say, what do you think of this? Or what do you think? Oh, he'll cook me nice food, which is great. And then actually now it's even though we're very used to working in the same place together there's there's something very different about the current circumstances because it before it was punctuated by us going to different meetings or seeing other people for a work point of view but like actual other humans <laughs> and yeah. that's not happening at the moment and he would also go to lots of restaurants and there's there's something and i think it's not just for couples that work together but all couples normally in life you have other things that balance your relationship out a little bit. You see your friends, you know, if your partner doesn't like rugby and you love it, you can see your friends that love rugby, not that there has been any rugby on. And, you know, you you get different things from different people and all of a sudden, all of that has gone. All of the balance in life and in relationships, all of the variety has gone. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on relationships. I mean, it can also do good things too. And, you know, there's some relate research about this. You know, some people, 43% said, 
well, we've been really enjoying spending time together, but there will be a lot of people who've been finding the increased time together pretty tricky. Okay, so we've tried to do this fact about six times now, and for some reason my computer is having a bit of a mental breakdown, and it keeps closing the podcast session, and Laura has been the trooper of all troopers and the most heroic guest we've ever had because we've had to restart this, and she's restarted the same sentence literally seven times now. So anyway, I've unplugged all the gizmos and gadgets and microphones and things, so if it sound a little bit different, then I apologize, but hopefully you can hear us, and hopefully we we can continue to shine light on what coronavirus has done to relationships. Well, I think this is a perfect example, right? Like if we were in person, we wouldn't have had to start new sessions. And this is how relationships are now, right? Like not all of them, but a lot of them, a lot of business relationships, family relationships, it's all online. And there are benefits because you can speak to people all around the world without traveling or putting anyone's health at risk. But there are massive disadvantages because, you know, you don't get to see all of their body language or, you know, sometimes you see yourself because, you know, if you're on a platform that shows you an image of yourself, then you know, whether you're trying to or not, you still can see how you look and that takes a bit of your brain space. So I think um, this is a literally the embodiment of what's happened to relationships. <laughs> and it seems like it's gone kind of two ways. Some people are having more sex, saying it's bringing them closer, are generally happier. And then other people are saying it's really making them doubt their relationships. Yeah. And really interestingly, more than a dozen cities in China saw a surge in divorce after lockdown ended. And the director of the Marriage and Family Committee in Wuhan said that after lockdown ended, the divorce rate in Wuhan doubled from its level before the outbreak. But, you know, there's nuance to that, like the divorce application procedure was suspended during the lockdown. And there was some, you know, this divorce lawyer was interviewed and he said some people who were thinking about divorcing before lockdown then decided not to divorce. So it's really easy to make generalizations. But I, I, I'm not surprised that the divorce rate has increased to the extent that now there is a new Chinese law that requires all divorcing couples to do a 30-day calming period before they're actually allowed. That 30-day calming period applies where both people agree they want to divorce. Whereas if only one person wants to divorce, you don't have to have a calming period to protect people who are in abusive situations. And that has also doubled compared to the same point in time last year. So there are some brilliant upsides. Yay, family spending time together and some really, really dark sides. And we don't even, we can't even get to the bottom of that because if you're locked in a home with someone who is really abusive and controlling, how are you going to, you know, make the call or get in contact with someone that you need help? Because that can be really, really dangerous in itself. So there's there's light and dark for relationships, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, on a really kind of mundane level, even for people in happy relationships, it's not normal for us to expect so much from one person. I know for me, my girlfriends, my siblings, like my mom, you know, these are, they're such big support parts of your support system. And then suddenly you, you know, your partner is your entire support system. And that is definitely a, you know, an unusual thing for anyone. It's also interesting as a kind of reflection of the way relationships are in the decade we're in, because people I interviewed that were much older, for example, Noel, an Irishman who I've already mentioned, he said that, you know, historically, when he was younger, he got a lot of support from community, um, from religious institutions. There was decreased mobility. And there's already a lot more pressure on relationships because we now come to expect so much more from our partners with some philosophers like Simon May saying, we now expect from our partner what we only thought God was capable of. So we've already piled a hell of a lot onto relationships, but I think lockdown has has made that a lot worse but also aside from expectation you know you might not expect it but you're you're going to have to get it because you just can't get what you were getting before yeah completely and your other two coronavirus special points which i thought were really interesting with it which i think is really worth noting actually is that studies are showing that quarantine does cause low mood and irritability and could you hear that? That was my dog yawning. <laughs> <laughs> a low mood and is irritable. Okay. 
<laughs> Austin's like, I don't want to talk about relationships. I'm firmly single. Um, uh, perks of recording at home. Yeah, which I think is really interesting just to acknowledge that, you know, it does make you irritable and that's okay. I love that. I So I looked into research into SARS and Ebola outbreaks because I wanted to know like what we had learned from history, basically. And unsurprisingly, quarantines aren't great for mental health. But also, it's not just that we're in quarantine. You know, people will be facing worries about finances, job security, the health of parents that are in care homes or, you know, being unable to see their parents, um, worries about the future. And then, you know, on top of that, there's just so much going on. Like uh, for for many people, they're realizing that we live in a hugely racist world that they might be questioning, you know, the people that are making important decisions in the country. And all of this really macro stuff can have a very big impact on your micro life. It can have a massive impact on your mental well-being. Then add to that that you don't have the social structures of work or friends, the sense that every other human poses a risk. And it's not surprising that mental health is impacted. And of course, that then impacts relationships. I interviewed this guy called Morris, who was 95 and had been married for 65 years and 49 days. And he talked about when he was married at the beginning he'd been a soldier in world war ii and he talked about him having ptsd but that it wasn't diagnosed you know back then they didn't really have the language to talk about it and you know as a soldier you were just put back into civilian life but he said that it really really impacted his relationship and it took him a while and it was only sort of really after he recovered that they they managed to get into the flow of their relationship and i think it's an important reminder that, you know, the big picture does have a really big impact on each of our little pictures. Yeah, no, I think that's so well put. You said there's there's so much that's been happening in the world this year. I mean, 2020 has been kind of cataclysmic in so <laughs> many different ways. And that's so much for everyone to process. And also invariably, I'm sure, even if you're very similar and you live together and you're absorbing similar kinds of information at similar-ish times, you're still going to assimilate it differently and you're going to probably react to it differently and you're probably going to feel it at different points. And so I think it would be a kind of unrealistic expectation to think that that wouldn't impact you at all. Yeah, but yet, even though I've looked into the research and I you know, intellectually know this, I find it surprising that it's impacting me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I somehow think I should just be able to carry on and be totally fine. And then I'm surprised when I'm feeling a bit anxious or exhausted or irritable or sad. I personally am really missing seeing my friends a lot, you know, and I'm happily married and I have a wonderful, wonderful son and I'm seeing my mum a lot and she's great, but I just miss my friends. Um, So I think everything that's going on is is difficult and that impacts relationships. So, you know, I'm not surprised that people are struggling in their relationships. And some of those struggles will be because the world is difficult right now or has been and and is. But some of it is because these difficulties are kind of highlighting problems in the relationship that were always there, but, you know, people could distract themselves from or that they plan to deal with later. And some of them will be because everything that's going on is eliciting things in individuals that means that they withdraw from a relationship. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. But yet, people are still looking for love. You said that on March 29th, Tinder had its busiest day in history, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I know. It's good, isn't it? So the stats suggest that there aren't more users, but the users that are there are doing a lot more Uh, They're looking more and they're refocusing and they're spending more time swiping and online platforms have to kind of up their game a bit because, you know, as people face financial pressures, online dating isn't a must have. It's a nice to have. So to keep that income coming in, online dating companies have been offering online speed dating or video functionality that they didn't have before because it's not like you can go up to someone in a pub. The pubs are closed. Yeah, exactly. No, it's so, so true. Gosh, honestly, I I feel like there's so much to say, it's impossible to get through 15. I think I was ambitious (laughs) with our list of facts. So I'm going to go back in with some of the earlier ones, Um, which I think, I guess this one makes a lot of sense, but I think it's still interesting reflecting on, which is that who you choose changes who you become. Yeah. The Seattle Longitudinal Study is a study that followed 
people for up to 35 years. It's quite a robust study. I looked at a lot of people across the US and they followed the people that stayed together over that period of time. And they found that couples became more similar in terms of vocabulary, happiness and intellectual ability. And it's not actually that surprising, right? And it's something that people, well, philosophers like Aristotle commented on a very long time ago. He said, you know, if you want to be a good person, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier if you have a very close friend, kind of the friendship he's talking about is very similar to what we think of in romantic relationships. If you have a very close friend who is also good, and if you want to be good, but you're with someone who is not good, then that's going to thwart you in trying to be a good person. And it makes like on a really banal level, you know, if you want to go to the gym and you make an agreement with your best mate that you're going to go to the gym, you're more likely to go to the gym. You know, it's easier to do things with someone else or it's easier to even think about who you are as a person and whether you're on track for what you want to be doing and who you want to be if you're with someone who's willing to kind of explore those questions and if you're with someone who just doesn't even want to go there it's going to be a a bit harder so it makes perfect sense that that who you're with changes you and that you might become more similar but there there are also ways in which you know, it's not as straightforward as that. It's not just you then suddenly miraculously, everything just becomes more similar. But I think also what was interesting was reading into existential philosophy, which I had read many years ago, but kind of forgotten. And a lot of the existential thinkers say, well, it's bigger than that, actually, because yeah, fine, you know, you might choose someone who changes who you become, but the act of choosing, the act of thinking about what you want in someone, that is changing who you are. So if you go online and you select filters or you you decide to really prioritize finding someone with loads of cash, for example, versus someone who's really kind, that choice just in and of itself is changing who you are and who you become. Yeah, that's a very good point. And actually it linked perfectly to one of our other points that we um we got distracted by earlier because there's so much good stuff to talk about with this, which is that um, people were asked um, what they looked for in a romantic partner and what was most important and that kindness and understanding were the two most popular picks for people of all ages and all backgrounds, which I think actually is a really nice thing to reflect on. It makes me certainly feel much better about the world. (laughs) What I love about that study is that it was you know, more than 10,000 people, 37 countries, six continents. I mean, that is a big old study. It's not like, you know, some studies in psychology, they get, you know, a bunch of undergraduates who have to take part in a study to get a course credit. You know, they're usually white, middle class, privileged, they're in their 20s. You know, really, what are they going to tell us about five decades of commitment? You know, I think you're getting a very narrow view, whereas this is people all around the world and I love that kindness and understanding was most important and that came above closely followed by exciting personality (laughs) which which I love Um, and intelligence and health but also money was really low down on that list which I find really life-affirming as well but there is some evidence against that there was a, a really tiny study where people were given a kind of budget to spend on a partner. And when they had all the money in the world, they prioritized kindness. But when they had a restricted budget, kindness kind of sank a bit lower and attractiveness became more important, which is a little bit less uplifting. It just shows as well that studies are absolutely fascinating and lots to learn from them, but they're never going to incorporate everything. Yeah. always keep saying life's sort of too nuanced for that. And also... People will say what they want, but there is a big difference between what people say they want and what they actually go for. Yeah, very good point. And it's that, that's like that's actually verified in speed dating and online dating studies. So, you know, another kind of counter argument against being supremely picky is that you don't really know what, what you want. And half the things you think you want aren't actually that important in the first place. And so I wanted to finish with three more points. And One of them, which I really, really like, and actually isn't necessarily what I expected, which is that a man's idea of what is attractive doesn't age with them. At 50, they still fancy who they did when they were 20. Yeah. (laughs) From the kindness, most uplifting stat to 
something that I find a bit sad. <laughs> yeah, so basically, Christian Rudder, who was a co-founder of OKCupid, looked at um, the data of real-time users. So this isn't a study where, you know, they got 100 people to answer some questions on a piece of paper. You're watching how people actually behave when they think they're not being watched. And men aged between 20 to 50 essentially went when rating for attractiveness for women who were in their low 20s, so 20 to 24-ish. But there is a kind of shift in terms of who they messaged. So you see that until about 35, they're happy messaging people in their 20s. And then suddenly at 35, they decide they shouldn't be doing that anymore. And then they stick to messaging people that are in their 30s. And then from 35 to 40, they continue messaging. At 35 to 39, they continue messaging people who are basically 30 until they turn 40. And then they decide 30 is a bit young. So they jump to 35. So it's almost as if men are messaging the youngest people they feel is socially appropriate to message. So they go, oh, you know what? Now I can't message people in their 20s anymore. But what I'll do is I'll message people with 30. And they do that for five years. But this is, you know, this is looking at heterosexual guys who are online dating. And, you know, not everyone online dates, but a lot of people do. Yeah, no, as you said, it, you know, can't encapsulate everyone, but it's still interesting. And can you compare that to what women do at all? Yeah, well, the the findings for gay guys and lesbians are quite similar. There's a tendency to go for younger throughout. But with women, there were some smaller studies that found kind of mixed results. But Christian Rudder's findings are probably the most robust. And he found that um, I think it was up to 29 women wanted older men. And then up to 32, sort of similar age. And then above that, they wanted people that were younger. Oh, interesting. So everyone's yeah. going younger, basically. And the, the one thing I think about the being younger thing is, what do you get if you go for someone younger? Yes, you get someone who looks younger and that may or may not be more aesthetically pleasing. And evolutionary psychologists would say, well, if you go for a younger female, that shows that they're more fertile, blah, blah, But that doesn't explain why the LGBTQ plus community are, uh, sometimes choose to go for people who look younger. But another point that a psychoanalyst made, which I really like, is that Maybe actually what they're trying to do is sort of avoid their mortality, because if you're going for someone younger, then you can deny that you yourself are aging. Yes. Classic midlife crisis. <laughs> Except it's not a midlife crisis because it's consistent for between 20 and 50. Really? For men. Um, we don't know what happens after 50 because he didn't get that data. Um, I think partly because not, you know, there aren't that many people over 50 who are using the platform at the time. But I, I doubt there would be much change. So the, our last one to finish is one that I, I think I actually did find quite surprising, which is that men around the world are likely to think that marriage makes you happier than women do. Yeah. Well, there is there is some gender difference when it comes to what people get out of heterosexual marriages. And the evidence is quite robust that men tend to get more health benefits out of marriages. They don't know why, you know, they pontificated. Maybe their female partners drag them to the doctor or look after them or make them good food or stop them from going out and drinking or whatever it is. But we also know that men tend to suffer more when relationships end and men are more likely to jump into a new relationship faster, which has ramifications if there are any kids involved. But as well as there being a gender difference, there is a cultural difference because in some cultures, for example, in Russia and the Philippines, 70% assumed that people who were married were happier. Um, so there is this kind of cultural idea that, that feeds in. You know, if you are in Russia or you're Russian and you think that marriages are happier, why is that? Is that because they have happier marriages? Is it because being single is more miserable there? Or is it because you have absorbed this cultural nebulous belief that marriage is what you ought to do and therefore you think that that makes people happier there's literally just so much to think about here it's unbelievable and I think the ultimate thing is all the stats say so many different things and it, it's just the ultimate example of the fact that relationships are just so complicated and individual and ever-changing and nuanced and 
all kinds of events impact on them. You know, one of the stats we didn't get to was that grief shown to last half a century. And, you know, and then we're also seeing how a pandemic and a quarantine impact relationships. And it's just absolutely fascinating. And I think that it's good to pick apart some of the nuance because often the nuance isn't really reflected, you know, in in media or in song lyrics. You know, there are just so many representations of all you need to do is find that one white person and then off you go. And I just don't think it's it's even nearly as simple as that. Oh my God, no. No, I know it's, it's like the Disney movie and you like, you know, Jasmine and Aladdin get on the magic carpet and then, you know, everything's perfect and you float off onto an adventure and it's just, it couldn't be less the case, but it's just the most fascinating topic and I could literally spend days talking to you about it and just so appreciate you taking the time to share a bit more with us today. It's, it's as I said, it's just, I think it's completely fascinating. Well, it's been lovely talking to you and I'm really pleased that you made a really good decision, even though you jumped in very early on. <laughs> It's paid off. <laughs> I know. I know. We are. We're so lucky. And um, it's been the most amazing, yeah, four and a half years now. So um, we've now been together over five years. So I think we're feeling like, okay, we obviously did make the right decision because we're still very happy. But it is um, it is quite a funny one to look back on. I love that you're honest about it because a lot of the people that I think have that jumped in early maintain that they knew all along and maybe they did but maybe they didn't you know I just I think it's dangerous I I always think about my responsibility you know if I'm researching this and talking about this I want to facilitate people making the best decisions they can do you know what I mean and I think delaying big decisions until the drugs wear off is just such a no-brainer for me so I think it's really great that you're like yeah we got it right but you know we're lucky that we got it right I definitely feel that I think in retrospect I can totally see that like overexcitement, overenthusiastic, sort of slight kind of drug addiction, you know, impact that the most amazing relationship has at the beginning. And it's, um, you know, it is different to, to every day, especially when you're running, you know, running business together, babies, you know, all of it has such a massive impact. Parenthood, I'm sure we could talk about for a million years more about how that impacts relationships, but it, it certainly does in so many different ways. But I've taken up so much of your time today because I crashed the podcast so many times. So Laura, just a massive, massive, massive thank you. I'll put all the details for Laura's book below and I'll also put the link to our first episode together because there's really, really interesting things in there, especially on attachment theory and understanding how our different ways of attaching to people have such a big impact on our relationship. So hoping you'll find that really interesting too if you haven't listened to it yet. Otherwise, have a lovely, lovely week, everyone. We will be back again next Tuesday. Hopefully you'll get the book in between and absolutely love cooking from it and can let us know what you've been cooking. Next week, we will be talking about the amazing power of breath. Such a simple thing, but such a profound impact. So we will see you next Tuesday. Thanks so much. Bye.